So the reading is Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 38. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. The son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semine, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kozam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliza, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serag, the son of Ruh, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalal, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thank you, Sam. You, um, you need to know that I did offer Sam the option. I was going to offer the option of um, uh, cutting bits of it out. She said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. I'm going to do the whole thing. And actually, it's quite good to hear the whole thing uh, because you get the feel of the weightiness of it. Let me ask a question at the beginning of this final session. If there was one thing you could change, sort of question you get in those stories where you... you the genie comes out of the um, bottle and it says, I'll give you one wish. If you had one wish, what would you wish for? All sorts of natural answers we would give, health or fulfillment or pleasure or love or intimacy or friendship or reconciliation, all manner of different things we might give. But what would you ask for? As Jesus was praying, heaven was opened verse 21 heaven was opened and perhaps the deepest thing we would want to wish for is that heaven would be opened heaven not in the sense of the skies the heavens opening when when it rains not in that sense but heaven in the place of God's dwelling not a place in our space-time universe but the the place where God dwells And the Bible teaches very consistently that the root of the human problem is that heaven is closed, that our first forefathers disobeyed God and were banished. In the dramatic language of Genesis chapter 3, they were banished from the garden and God placed cherubim 
frightening angels and a flaming sword flashing back and forth so they could not come back inside and heaven was closed. And from that terrible time on they lived and we now live in the um, vivid expression that John Steinbeck used in his Nobel Prize winning novel, We Live East of Eden, outside the Garden of Eden. The gate is closed, the way to life is closed, we live in darkness and in the shadow of death. And all our problems go back to that, sickness of body or mind, strife or quarrels or war or troubles or broken relationships and death itself, heaven is closed. And all down Old Testament history, there are hints that one day the gate will open. Jacob sees a ladder in Genesis 28 with angels going up and down, and there seems to be access to heaven in his vision. The tabernacle, the tent where God's glory dwelt, was a kind of foretaste of of, of, of earth and heaven being reconnected, and then the, the temple, the same sort of thing. Every now and then somebody saw a vision of heaven, Every now and then you see somebody seeing a vision of heaven, but without access to heaven. And you get, you get this longing, you get it in, in, in the book of Job, in one of Job's speeches in Job chapter 9. If only there were a mediator, if only there was someone to hold my hand and hold God's hand and bring us together. That longing that heaven would be opened and the, that, that access would be restored. And you read through Luke chapters 1 and 2, and the beginning of Luke 3, and you keep getting this, this sense that there's, there's a dawn of hope. Chapter 1, verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Chapter 2, verse 14, the angels glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Chapter 2, verse 32, Simeon, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, seeing God's salvation. And it's just that sense that one day heaven will be opened. And I'd love you to come with me, if you will, to uh, two things. First of all, a moment of astonishing intensity. It's a short moment, very, very brief. But it's one of those intense moments that encapsulates within itself an extraordinary depth of meaning. And then after that, in the genealogy, a whole age of history going right back to the start of the human race. But come with me first to this moment of astonishing intensity. It's just two verses in Luke's gospel. All the people are being baptized. Verse 21, you picture the scene, another day of John the Baptist's baptism meetings, and there they are, young and old, men and women, hypocrites, contrite, burdened, casual, all manner of different people, sort of crowds that you're used to in London. Crowds of them all coming to be baptized. And there's a great sort of hubbub of all these people coming for the baptism um, meeting. And then we read, Jesus was baptized too. And you're reading through John's Gospel and you've read the account of his childhood when he was 12, which we did yesterday uh, morning in the first of the talks. And you think, why does he need to be baptized? Because you know that it's a baptism of repentance and you think, surely there's nothing of which he needs to repent. And so you read those words, Jesus was baptized too, and you're thinking, why? What's going on? And then you read, as he was praying. So you just pause there for a moment, and you meditate. Here is one, you, you, you watch him there as he comes to be baptized. Here is one who is fully man. 
He comes for a baptism of repentance. In, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist, you know, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist says, um, you know, you shouldn't be in this queue, more or less. It, it doesn't need to be you. You don't need this. Why have you come? I need to be baptized by you, not you by me, says John the Baptist. And Jesus says, no, it's the right thing to do. It's to fulfill all righteousness. And the question is asked, why did Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist in this baptism of repentance? I was reading one commentary which said he just wanted to show his support for John the Baptist's ministry. Isn't that pathetic? (laughs) You do read nonsense in some commentaries. You really do. He just wanted to show his support, so I'll go along and be baptized in a baptism of repentance even though I don't need it. How pathetic. What nonsense. (laughs) Much more persuasive, I think, is this, that the shadow of the cross fell on Jesus right from the very beginning of his public ministry. And he was numbered, as, as the prophecy in Isaiah 53 tells us, he was numbered with the transgressors, counted as a sinner right from the very beginning. And although he himself had no sin of which he needed to repent, nonetheless, he would undergo for us, his people, a baptism of repentance as the shadow of the cross fell on him even from that beginning. And he prays in his complete full humanity, complete dependence upon God, his Father. He exercises faith. He trusts. He's fully human. He has a human body, human bones and ligaments and muscles and blood and vital organs. He has a human mind in all the workings of the human mind, neural pathways, all of the complexities of the human mind. Jesus has all of that. He has a human will. He wants as a human being. He desires as a human being. There were great debates about this in, actually in the, in the, in the seventh century. They had great debates. Did Jesus have one will or two wills? Did he just have a divine will, but the rest of him was human? Or did he have a human will? And the conclusion was reached rightly, I'm sure, that in order to be fully human, you must have not just a body and a mind and a heart and affections, but you must have a will, a human will. And so he who from all eternity has been God the Son now takes upon himself a human nature in his conception and birth and has in all its fullness our humanity. Here he is and you see him there praying. And in the, uh, the next passage at the beginning of chapter 4, you, you, you watch him being really genuinely tempted. And his temptations were not play-acting. This was real and intense. So you see one who is fully man. And then you see one who is fully God. Because you see in verse 22, the Holy Spirit descends upon him uh, in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit has been the constant companion of Jesus from all eternity, of, of the Son of God from all eternity. But now in his incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit comes upon his mother in his conception. And right from the very beginning of his human existence as, 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 as incarnate, the Holy Spirit is there with him. He overshadows uh, Mary's womb. Right through his childhood, you see him growing in faith and wisdom and favor, and the Holy Spirit is with him. And now the Holy Spirit comes visibly, like a dove. The Holy Spirit is not incarnate, 
Jesus takes on a human body and and has still a human body, a resurrection body, but a human body. Uh, but the Holy Spirit just, who is invisible, he, he becomes visible for this moment in the form of a dove. We can't be absolutely sure why a dove. It may be associations of gentleness. It's often been thought from very early in Christian history that this is um, a, 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 an echo of the dove in Genesis chapter 8 at the end of the flood in the days of Noah. So John Chrysostom, an early church father, says, um, why was the Holy Spirit taking the form of a dove? Because after the flood, the dove proclaimed release from the storm, bearing a branch of olive. For the Holy Spirit now brings the release from evil, a sign of freedom. Uh, John Owen, the, the Puritan, centuries later, said the dove that brought tidings to Noah of the ceasing of the flood and proclaimed peace to those that would return to God by him, the great peacemaker. And so the Holy Spirit comes down on him as a dove to equip him, give him power for ministry. The Spirit who's been his constant companion from all eternity now comes down on him in a particular way. In, in John's account of it, in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist says that, that, that God told him that if you see the Holy Spirit come down on somebody and remain on him, and twice in John chapter 1 you get that word remain or abide or stay, and Jesus is the one upon whom the Spirit remains. In John chapter 3 verse 34 we read that, that, the, that God gives the Holy Spirit to, to, to Jesus without limit, uh, the Holy Spirit is given to the people of God in measure. Uh, he, he, he allocates his gifts. We have him in his person, but he allocates his gifts. But Jesus has him not just his person, but without measure, without limit, unlimited, the man of the Spirit. And if you glance on chapter 4, verse 1, you'll see Luke draws attention to this. Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 18, he quotes from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, from Isaiah chapter 61. Here is the one who is fully man and fully God. And then the voice is heard from heaven, the voice, I take it, of God the Father, and the voice says, you are my son, an echo of Psalm 2, a coronation psalm, the king in David's line. You are my son, with whom I'm well pleased, an echo of uh, a prophecy of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 42, the suffering servant. Here is the voice of the father. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And to this man, heaven is opened. Here in this moment of astonishing intensity, had you been there, you would never have got, forgotten that moment. And you see a fully human being. You see the man, Jesus, of Nazareth, who is one of us, who can reach out a hand to us as one of us. And you see him as the eternal son of the Father and the eternal man of the Spirit. And he is the mediator. And to him, heaven is opened. And it is the most extraordinary moment Perhaps one of the most extraordinary moments in human history. 
and he can bring us to God. We'll come back to that at the end uh, of the talks. I want to press this home to us in a, uh, a way that I think is, is true and encouraging. So there is the moment of intensity. Verse 23, and obviously, as Sam read it, you picked this up, there's a change of feel from intensity, this intense moment of the baptism of Jesus, to immensity, from a compressed truth to a long-drawn-out hope. It's almost the next bit like the opening sequence of a Star Wars movie, isn't it? Fading into the distance, son of, son of, son of, son of, and it just goes back and back and back and back. Now, there are puzzles about these genealogies. Matthew has one which is a little bit different in in Matthew chapter 1, and there are puzzles and scholars um, argue uh, about that. I think there are answers, but it, it is a little bit puzzling. One of the interesting things about Luke's genealogy is it goes backwards. Most genealogies go forwards from, from, from you know, um, whoever you start with, Abraham or David or whoever it is, and you just go, um, was father of, was father of, was father of, and so on, on down the genealogy. But this one goes backwards. And it begins with, with Joseph, the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So Joseph was Jesus' legal father, adoptive father. And if you track through, you'll find verse 31, you'll find um, David, the king. Uh, Verse 34, you find Isaac and Abraham, the patriarchs. Verse 36, you get right back to Noah. Um, So you you get some names you recognize amidst lots of names that we don't. And then going right back before the flood. And then ending, I wonder if you were surprised by this, the son of Adam, the son of God. Were you surprised by that? If you said Jesus is son of God, would you have gone via son of Adam? You probably wouldn't, would you? We tend to think son of God is a a different and rather separate category. What does Luke mean by this genealogy and by putting it in this particular way? Well, I think there are are probably two or three things. There may be more. Uh, One is that the long genealogy suggests a tremendous weightiness. You know, you give someone a genealogy in Bible literature, even if you say son of, son of, um, you know, you're thinking, here's somebody significant. And then if you say son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, it goes on for the length of that reading. You think this is someone of very great weight. That's part of the significance. The fact that, that Luke takes the genealogy back to Adam is significant, I think. Incidentally, I think there's good reason uh, to think and no good scientific reason not to think that there was a first forefather of the human race. And it's perfectly reasonable and right that we should believe in the historicity of Adam. Um, but the, the significance of Adam is, is that he is the forefather of the human race, and therefore that the point of taking the genealogy back to Adam is just to signal here is one who is of significance for the whole human race. You may know that the Hebrew word Adam um, functions both as a name of Adam, as in Adam and Eve, but also as in the, the man, the first, the progenitor of the human race, a kind of generic word. It functions in, in both ways, as it what we call mankind or humankind. 
And uh, Romans chapter 5, the second half of Romans chapter 5 is an important place to look for the, 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 the significance of Adam and the significance of Christ, whom Paul calls the last Adam in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So one of the things I think Luke is doing is signaling to us, here is, here is somebody, as you, read, as you read on in Luke's gospel, Luke is saying, don't forget that the man I'm going to tell you about has significance for everybody. That's part of it, right back to Adam. But another thing is, is, is the rather strange to us, um, the son of Adam, the son of God. Does it, you, know, you, you think, what's going on here? Doesn't it puzzle you a little bit? The son of Adam, the son of God? You think, I, I wouldn't have put it like that if I'd been writing the genealogy. And you read back in, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, you read about the creation of the, the first man and the woman, um, and God says, let us, let us create in our image, in our likeness. Um, and Adam is made, and indeed Eve, in the image and likeness of God. And then in Genesis chapter, maybe just turn up Genesis 5. Keep, up a, keep a finger in Luke and turn up Genesis 5. Right back to, to the beginning, to Genesis 5. So the, I've got the new NIV here, Genesis 5, verse 1. When, when God created mankind, he made them, it's literally he made him, but it's generic for, for, for humankind, in the likeness of God, um, verse 2, male and female, and so on. And then verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, same words. So, Adam had a son in his own image or likeness. Adam was made in the image or likeness of God. In other words, there's something godlike about Adam. And when Luke takes the genealogy of Jesus right the way back to Adam and then to God, he's, he's, he's doing something which elsewhere in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul talks about the Son as the image of the invisible God, um, uh, all the fullness of God dwelling in him. And the, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, is a godlike creature. He is indeed God, the Son, as well. But in his full humanity, he is a godlike creature. He, Adam, when he sinned, ruined the godlikeness. It's still there. Human beings are, by nature, the worst human being you ever meet is made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. The image has not been erased, but it's spoiled. And if you want the perfect image of God, you find it in Jesus. Now, that just reminds us that there's, um, when you talk about Christ having a, a fully human nature and a fully divine nature, you're not talking, we sometimes say this is like, you know, uniting a frog and a prince or something, sort of two completely different things. It's not a union of two completely different properties. Um, actually, a perfect humanity unspoiled by sin would um, coalesce with the divine, would find its perfection in the divine. There is something profoundly godlike about unspoiled humanity. 
And in taking the genealogy right back like that, I don't know if I've made that clear, but he's saying something very significant about Jesus as the image of God. So you get to the end of chapter 3 and you think, well, Jesus is the mediator. He's fully man and he's fully God. He's the one to whom heaven is opened um, and that's a wonderful thing. He's the image of God. He's human uh, and yet fully God. And you're thinking this is wonderful, but I don't fully understand it. But I want, before I close, to take us back to the baptism scene and just to to make us think a little bit more about that. So come back with me, if you will, to this baptism scene. You you watch Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the water of the River Jordan. And you see the Holy Spirit coming down on him like a dove and you hear the voice of the Father, this is my son whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased, and so on. And you see heaven opened, whatever that means. I don't know what that meant in a sort of video sense, but there's some profound sense in which the, the door to heaven is, is, is opened. I want to unpack the significance of this for you or for me if we are in Christ. And I just want to, 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 to sow a seed thought in your mind because you, you watch as spectators, don't you? You watch the baptism of Jesus and you think this is wonderful. Here is the man to whom heaven is opened. But how does this affect me? Now, if you belong to Jesus, you are baptized, not with the baptism of John, but baptized with Christian baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You too are baptized. And as a baptized believer, you pray through Christ, Ephesians 2 verse 18, you have access to the Father by one spirit. So you pray, you have access to God, heaven is opened to you in Christ. You're in Christ. And the Holy Spirit, as it were, descends upon you to dwell in you forever. The Holy Spirit has come down upon you in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit has come down upon you to dwell in you forever. And you too hear the voice of the Father, The father says to the son, uh, you are my son whom I love, and you and I are in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verse 6 talks about God's glorious grace freely given us in the beloved. And in the beloved son belonging to Jesus, the father says to us, you are my child. You are my son or daughter. You share the privileges of the sonship of Jesus because you belong to him. And I love you, and I'm well pleased with you, because I I look at you and I see the perfection of Jesus. John says in his first letter, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So if you are in Christ, there is a sense, a derivative sense, in which you and I are there in that baptism scene, in which the Holy Spirit comes down upon us and dwells in our hearts and gives us new birth, and we are in Christ, in which the Father's voice, you are my child, my beloved, I love you, in the beloved, with you I'm well pleased. You too are a descendant of Adam, but now a descendant of the last Adam, the true Son of God, and your life 
is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, verse 3. What a joy. What a privilege. So if there's one thing you could change, it would be that heaven would be opened. If you're in Christ, you rejoice that heaven has been opened. And you think of that extraordinary, intense baptism scene, and you think, in Christ, what I've seen there as a spectator is true of me. And so in the midst of the mess and the sadness and the pain and the anxieties and the health concerns and the bereavements and the troubles and the darkness, that if we told our stories, there would be plenty of those. Could go on for a long time of the sadness. Behind every front door, there is sadness and there are tears. All of that. And yet, to you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, heaven has been opened. The Father looks down on you with love in the Beloved. And he says, you're my child, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit has come down upon you, not in bodily form like a dove, but with the same comfort of the dove after the flood in Noah's day. The Holy Spirit has come down upon you, dwells in your heart, and to you heaven is opened. And to you the privilege is there of prayer, that you can speak to the Father in the name of the Son, by the Spirit. What a wonderful privilege in the midst of darkness and sorrow. And so this baptism of Jesus is not simply a passage that teaches us the wonder of Jesus. It does teach us the wonder of Jesus. But when you look at that in the light of the whole of the New Testament teaching, you realize that it's not just a wonderful thing that I watch and look at. It's a wonderful thing uh, in which I participate by grace. And that is a truly marvelous thing. So, my friends, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to pray um, in just a moment. But I'm hoping and praying that this, um, this little sort of glimpse that Luke has given us of the wonder of Jesus, I suppose my prayer really is that you and I will go back. You'll go back to London, poor things. I shall go back to Cambridge. Um, but we'll go back glad to belong to Jesus. And if somebody says to you, so, so what was the church weekend about? Well, it's, or what effect has it had on you? I'm hoping some of you may say, it's made me more glad than ever to belong to Jesus. And uh, if, that's, if that's how you feel, then that's a win. Um, I should be very happy if that's the case. Let's be quiet for a moment, and we'll have a moment of quiet, and I'll, I'll pray. God, our Father, as we think back to that astonishing scene where, the, where heaven is opened to the mediator, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, and we see the Holy Spirit coming down on him like a dove, and we hear your voice, you're my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. We praise and thank you not only for the wonder of Jesus, but for the astonishing privilege of being men and women who belong to him and we pray that uh, you would give to us preoccupied as we are with our sadnesses and sorrows and anxieties and concerns and uncertainties that in the midst of all those you would graciously give us by your holy spirit a fresh assurance
of how deeply loved we are in Christ and of the privilege of being indwelt by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.